0: This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families.
1: As a field, child welfare's approach to preventing abuse and neglect is swiftly migrating to a community-based approach. The bottom line is the need for relationships across agencies, services, and organizations, along with the need to ensure the capacity exists within all these groups to meet children and families where they are and apply the resources and support to their specific needs. And this is applicable not only within local communities but across counties and even statewide. Welcome into the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, everyone. I'm Tom Oates. And we are spending a few episodes to focus again on community based prevention, and specifically community based child abuse prevention programs, also known as CB cap programs. Now, the purpose of the CB cap programs are to support community based efforts to develop operate expand enhance and coordinate the initiatives the programs and the activities to prevent child abuse and neglect and to support the coordination of resources and activities to better strengthen and support families to reduce the likelihood of abuse and neglect and also to foster the understanding appreciation and knowledge of diverse populations in order to effectively prevent and treat child abuse and neglect now In this episode, we're going to talk specifically about how CB-CAP grantees leverage evidence-based practices and programs into their work. Clearly, with the signing of the Families First Prevention Services Act, there's a greater attention placed on evidence-based practice. So the challenge for CB-CAP grantees, which is the challenge for anyone choosing and implementing evidence-based practices, is to make sure the program fits the need and helps to deliver the desired outcome for your constituency group. So today we're gonna to hear from CBCAP grantees implementing evidence-based practices at a local level and a statewide level. And I encourage you to listen closely to how they tailor the programs to meet the unique needs of the families served and how important relationships are to success. Now, at a local level, we talked with Nikki Hartwig. She's one of the program directors for Child Abuse Prevention Services, a nonprofit serving Marshall County, Iowa. We talked about their Strong Foundations program, a home visitation program that serves immigrant families in Marshall County who are either expecting a child or have children up to five years old. We'll hear how and why they chose evidence-based practices and how they tailor programs to meet this unique constituency group. Now, for a statewide perspective, we started off with Heidi Acure, the Assistant Director and Prevention Coordinator for the Maine Children's Trust. Now, in Maine, the Maine Children's Trust works directly with a series of regional child abuse and neglect councils, and their job is to help build capacity for service providers and families. And that's where we start, understanding the structure and relationships needed to implement evidence-based practices across the state of Maine. Heidi Akure, welcome into the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. And, you know, I want to focus in on what you guys are doing from a statewide level in Maine. But first, just to give everybody a sense of of the relationship, can you explain the connection between Maine Children's Trust and and the state's Child Abuse and Neglect Prevention Councils?
2: Absolutely. So the Child Abuse and Neglect Prevention Councils are in Maine in statute um, to provide countywide child abuse prevention efforts. And in 2015, Maine Children's Trust uh, entered into a contract with the Maine Department of Human Services uh, to work with the councils across the state uh, to reduce child abuse and neglect through uh, prevention efforts such as evidence-based curriculums, parent support. Uh, And so we developed that relationship um, to provide the best possible um, supports to families and to professionals.
1: So with that, clearly you're trying to you know, build skills for, for the parents, for the families, but also at that same time, especially because we've got such a high turnover in the field with professionals, um, how is then this relationship and, and the Children's Trust supporting the, the, the ability to learn, that building capacity uh, element?
2: Sure. So uh, the first three-year contract that we had in 2015, um, we uh, had a demonstration project. And so we looked at the uh, Office of Child and Family Services child maltreatment data for every county in Maine. And we shared that information with the councils so that we can identify gaps and needs for the families in that specific county. So everything is tailored to that county. So, for instance, if um, child uh, neglect is highest in uh, children zero to one, then we look to the council to provide evidence-based curriculums and strategies and supports that will support those families prenatally and parents of children zero to one. So... It's supporting the work for directly with the families, uh, unique to that population, and also targeting uh, strategies and efforts for the councils to actually make an
1: impact. So you've got you know, definitely there's an advantage from from looking at the data from you know a council wide or at times for another state maybe a county wide or a region wide um, you know view, and therefore you can tailor those 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 offerings and tailor those services a- as you mentioned. Uh, but I'm curious in terms of you've got a single entity in in the Maine Children's Trust but you are working with different councils who have different staff who have different maybe uh, potential you know levels of resources so with these diverse councils knowing that yes you can tailor the services for them but their ability to you know execute may differ from council to council like in any state from from county to county uh, how are you able to kind of establish some consistency across these counties. So you're able to see kind of that that capacity building at a statewide level.
2: Sure. So um, the trust does provide that coordinated leadership, um, central statewide support. Um, so we provide uh, trainings for all the councils. We meet the councils where they are. As you said, they're all various uh, levels of implementation. Um, they all have very unique needs. So we provide um, training for all the staff. We developed a toolkit uh, so that there is some infrastructure and some guide uh, to the council on how to implement this. Uh, However, it is flexible so that they can accommodate their populations. Uh, So we provide all that central support. We have a learning community here at the trust. All the councils get together um, and learn from each other, learn evidence-based strategies, best practices. Um, We've had some innovative practices come out of that. Uh, Maine is the first um, state to use the Circle of Parents uh, support group uh, virtually. So we've come up with some innovative things for folks to use um, by bringing folks together, learning from each other, supporting the needs, training, um, you know, if there's a training that Uh, focus in an area that we haven't looked at yet, then we as a learning community uh, decide what's best for the state, uh, what curriculum is really going to use. So we we share in our decision making.
1: I'm curious about that kind of peer-to-peer learning uh, across the the councils. Um, How willing were were folks? Because at times it's it's potentially uh, more work for folks to get involved, or we don't need to, to share everything with everybody. But then in, in other situations, you can find that uh, you, you, you can't stop them from, from always communicating, always reaching out. What's that level of engagement across the, the peers in, in Maine?
2: Right. So um, initially when the we had the first demonstration project, um, there was a little bit of, you know, what are we doing and why are we doing it this way? We've been doing things, you know, this way for so long and it's working just fine. However, um, when we started looking at the data that shows exactly the focus that, folk, you know, folks should be working in um, and you bring in the community, that's another part of this project is to have community leaders um, come in. Uh, they started to understand the need, so the data is really pointing you in one direction. Um, however, you really love that, that curriculum that you've been doing for 10 years, and it's just a staple of your agency, but we really want to move the needle, so we wanted to focus our efforts. And once once we started to show the data and show the community need um, and have their input, then it really guided us to the, to the right direction. Um, to focus on those efforts. So it did It did take some time, as most things do, uh, a lot of input, a lot of front-loaded work, a lot of research, um, but it, it's resulting in really re- reaching families and professionals where they are.
1: And I'm sure there's also an effort to just building that relationship and trust uh, back and forth.
2: Yeah, all the work that we do, um, as you know, with families, it, it's all based on trust. So having a lot of input in the community and parents um, and other professionals is key to, to all our work.
1: So you're at a statewide level right now, and you're working with councils who are at a regional level, and they are each working with their communities. And so this kind of you know multi-tiered relationship that you've got to kind of build, uh, I'm curious, being that you're at that state level, how are you able to then develop those relationships with each of the councils but really in an effort to help them foster relationships with each of their communities, kind of at that grassroots level. What are you able to do to help support that kind of relationship building?
2: Right. So uh, we have a lot of um, background and research to do on our end as well. So we really uh, look at all the national strategies and we bring them to these local folks. Um, We help them specific to their needs, uh, you know, and really sit with them and do site visits, have lots of conversations about individual needs. Uh, We really want their staff to be trained and feel really confident going out and talking to families and working with them about all parenting supports. So we have a training team here. Um, We have a database that really tracks their efforts so they can see um, they are meeting their goals, they are moving the needle. Um, We do have a a retrospective protective factor survey that we use. Uh, We share those results back with the councils to show that they are, you know, making statistical improvements in uh, protective factors in families. Um, Their work is paying off, so we, you know, we are in touch with them individually, which are all different uh, every step of the way to make sure that they are, um, you know, successful.
1: And despite those differences, uh, I'm curious, are there any common um, needs, common themes that you're hearing statewide?
2: Uh, yep. Yeah. So we we do have a hard time reaching uh, families prenatally, which, as you can imagine, is is a, an age where, um, you know, families are really focused on, um, you know, preparing for their children uh, to come into the world. And, and once they get here, you know, just becoming a new parent is difficult. So... We've come up with some great strategies um, to to bring families um, into our parenting community. Um, we have uh, parenting playgroups, um, parent supports, um, and then from that uh, we have um, we bring them into the, our, our evidence based curriculum. So we, like you said, we build the trust first, and then we move the needle uh, for them to keep uh, being involved. Kind of a holistic model.
1: So I want to dive into that evidence based uh, curriculum, um, which. Or which curricula do you guys currently offer?
2: Uh, Well, um, that's part of the uniqueness of this project, too, is that we have over, I would say, over 20 different curriculums that we use. They're all evidence-based curriculums, but uh, some of them are Active Parenting uh, Suite, the Nurturing Parenting Suite, the 123 Magic, uh, lots of different, um, you know, curriculums that actually are available to the councils to kind of pick what is the best strategy and curriculum for their population. So we we really try to have a range for folks to use. Um, as you know, evidence-based curriculums could be four weeks to 17 weeks. Um, and that also brings up that we have special populations uh, such as um, you know, those who are recovering from substance abuse. We have nurturing fathers just for dads. Um, we have different curriculums that that can really, um, you know, focus on groups that that there's a need.
1: Yeah, and it points back to that ability, like you mentioned, to tailor what you offer for the communities, knowing that you're going to have a, a lot of diverse needs. You have to have, you know, the, the support of that on your end with the curriculum that you offer. So yes, there's the evidence-based factor toward it. And you mentioned some have different lengths or different requirements. So why were these particular you know, this range of 20. How were those programs selected?
2: Sure. So uh, some of them were in Maine before our involvement. Some of the councils were already using those and they've been working well. Um, and then we've uh, added on some of the specialty um, curriculums based on need. Um, you know, substance abuse is a real problem. In Maine, our our new governor is really focusing on on substance abuse prevention and um, that's something we brought in two or three years ago uh, just to meet the need. So um, to answer your question, sorry.
1: Sure, sure, sure. And and we know the, the term and the label of evidence-based uh, carries some weight carry some volume, but as anyone who works in a local community recognizes is, just what something may have worked someplace else doesn't mean I can automatically just deploy it, plug and play, and it's going to work the same way in, in a particular community. Yet there is some strength in the evidence that's that's there. I'm, I'd like to get your, your take and, and really the take of the, the trust as well of the value placed on evidence-based practice versus maybe other programs that may have had success yet aren't certified or branded as evidence-based practice, where does the trust kind of fall in terms of the direction that you'd go in terms of choosing or implementing programs?
2: Yeah. So the trust really focuses on evidence-based strategies, um, and that's because we know that works. Uh, We know that's been proven. Um, We, you know, there's funding going towards all these programs and these efforts and we really want to make sure that we make an impact. Um, We also uh, evaluate all these evidence-based programs no matter what the curriculum with that retrospective um, protective factor uh, survey. So we can go across uh, curriculums with one survey to make sure that we are impacting the families with providing protective factors in their lives. Um, So that consistency with us is important, that evidence-based strategies, uh, making sure that we actually are spending 17 weeks with families, it really is going to make a difference, is really important to us and our funder.
1: And and finally, this kind of really gets back to how strong the relationships are between the trust and and the councils. But when you do work with the council and there is a recommendation for a a new program, for a curricula, um, how are you getting buy in from the councils to get them to say, all right, uh, I follow you, I agree with you, let's go do this?
2: Well, uh, luckily, we don't have to actually have to get in buy-in. We actually talk with them every step of the way. So they come to us. They tell us, you know, this curriculum is too long. We're losing those prenatal moms. They're not going to come to a 15-week program. Um, you know, what can we do? And in that learning community, we, you know, we talk to all the directors of the councils and and the educators and say, what is working and what's not working? And then we uh, at the trust can go out and look nationally. Um, We also, you know, the councils hear about different programs that work, um, evidence-based curriculums and elsewhere. um, And we really dive in to see what that is uh, with with the council. So it's never us mandating it coming down. Um, And the state who funds us really is uh, open to us, you know, sharing as long as it's evidence-based what curriculums really are going to work for the families. Our councils are the experts. They are out in the community working directly with those families. And we're just here to provide that scaffolding and structure um, to support them in their work.
1: And that, and that structure also hinges deeply on a strong relationship, which clearly talks about the back and forth and the dialogue and the respect for each other. So you're not just handing something over that, you know, everybody realizes that they have some, um, some, some value to provide and that they're going to be listened to be it on, on the councils and, or be it uh, on, on your end to say, Hey, you know, we value what we say. So let's meet, let's, let's find something to meet that need. Uh, so, where is the where are, where is the trust looking in terms of for the future and working with the councils in their local community? Clearly, you mentioned substance abuse, but where is kind of like the next two to three years down the road? What's the objectives for for the trust to you know a- increasing the impact?
2: Absolutely. So, we're already looking at our next contract period, as I'm sure most people do. Um, and what can we do? What have we ha- what have we learned in these past? Uh, grant periods that we could, uh, you know, strengthen our efforts. Um, so, you know, we're looking at core training for our staff, really having a robust. Uh, you know, overview of what is, you know, prevention, what is, why is evidence-based practices so important, just as we've been talking here. uh, You know, how do you really connect with your community? If you're a brand new staff, how do you go out and make sure that you are reaching your whole county? Um, You know, Maine is a very rural state. How are we going out to meet those rural families? Um, You know, meet them where they are, not sitting in an office and asking them to come to you. Um, So we're looking at different strategies to kind of improve our efforts, um, really focusing on getting those uh, protective factor um, uh, surveys out and making sure that we are actually improving um, protective factors in families. And as most people do, whatever, you know, what else is out there in terms of curriculums that um, are really going to focus on helping those family needs? So. Um, looking at our best practices, looking at lessons learned, um, and and trying to improve.
1: Heidi, I I really appreciate you giving us this this statewide perspective on how to help implement evidence-based curricula, but yet realizing that it can't be done in a blanket for an entire state, and it really has to develop, and we've said it a few times, on the relationships with with your regions, with your counties, with your councils, and then those relationships down to the level of the communities involved.
2: Yeah, evidence-based doesn't mean that it has to be rigid. I mean, you can have some flexibility, and I think some people – don't realize that. You you do have to stick to your curriculums, but you have some flexibility in choosing them and making sure that they, they meet the need.
1: All right. I want to switch gears a little bit and, and now focus a little bit more on a local level. And for that, we're going to focus in on the state of Iowa. And Nikki Hartwig is is here with us. Nikki, we'll just walk right into it. Strong Foundations is, is the program. And I'll ask you to just to start it off the top with explaining a little bit about uh, Strong Foundations, what the program is and And what it's intended to do
3: okay so um, strong foundations is a home visiting program we um, use the parents as teachers curriculum the idea behind the program is that we are providing some parent education we're providing family support services and there for this particular program is a real focus on serving immigrant families Um, so there are there are multiple components that go into that. Um, there's a definitely a focus on safety and child well-being, um, and we do that in a lot of different ways. So we are providing education around child safety and child development. We want to make sure that families are knowing um, how to access services. Where can they go in our community to get help? Um, and then we provide just general family support for them too. So that might be just answering questions. Um, it can be helping them navigate the healthcare system, um, assisting with actually interpreting for local appointments. So many of the families we're serving um, are Hispanic families who speak Spanish. Um, So just being able to go along with them so that we can uh, make sure that they're understanding, you know, what the physician is saying, make sure that they can ask all the questions they're wanting to
1: ask. And you mentioned parents as teachers, and I want to dive into that uh, in in a moment. But since you are dealing with with immigrant families where there is a there's a culture change there is an entirely new environment like you mentioned new language new systems and then you have folks coming into your home how has a trust been able to be established in, in 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 an area where you're dealing with such change for a family and, and where change can be scary?
3: Right, right, absolutely. Um, so the like I said, the majority of the families that we are serving are Hispanic families um, and we have two family support workers who are also Hispanic. Um, so we have found that to be a very, very important piece of what makes this program work so well. Um, they share some of the same customs and traditions. Um, Obviously, they can communicate with each other um, in their native language, which makes things a lot easier for them. Um, So that's definitely, I think, probably one of the more important pieces of that is, is When you're allowing somebody to walk into your home, they automatically feel a little bit more comfortable knowing that, hey, they they maybe have some of the same beliefs, some of the same traditions um, that I have.
1: And so you've got the two uh, home visitors for for how many families?
3: Um, So each home visitor maintains a caseload of around twenty five to twenty eight families. So they're very busy.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, and and give give us a sense uh, for those listening. Where in Iowa, Marshalltown, correct?
3: Marshalltown, yes. So we're pretty centrally located in the state. Um, we are about an hour from some of the more, um, the larger cities that people typically would know. So we're about an hour from Des Moines, about an hour from Cedar Falls, Waterloo area, um, probably an hour and a half or so from Cedar Rapids. So so like I said, pretty centrally located.
1: So you are now dealing with, as you mentioned, parents as teachers, and and there are a lot of programs out there. Why parents as teachers was the approach that uh, that you selected to apply here?
3: So the Parents as Teachers program was a program that we are familiar with because um, we've used it for several years uh, amongst our other programs. Uh, We felt like Parents as Teachers was a pretty well-rounded approach to helping families succeed. So um, there's that focus on helping a parent understand what to expect from their child in terms of development, um, having them... Um, know, how do I help my child learn? How do I help them grow? Um, but then there's also that component of family support. Um, and that's, A piece that I think is so important when you have immigrant families coming in. So, you know, we are serving families who maybe have lived in Marshalltown for a year, and some who maybe just arrived in the United States, uh, you know, within the last couple of weeks. So being able to support them in whatever they need is really a, a key component there um and two when they're new to the area they may not have someone else to rely on you may be that first person that they uh, feel that they can trust
1: So it's as you mentioned family support there's there's an element of of you know community support or really kind of engagement with the community because somebody can feel very 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 alone uh, in a brand new world
3: right right. The other nice thing about parents as teachers is that the parent handouts are available in Spanish. Um, And so that alone too is, is the curriculum itself tends to be a little more welcoming to them when they can, you can hand them something and they can read it in their native language.
1: Did you tailor the program in any way for, for the way you guys uh, apply it?
3: Um, We have some, yes. So, um, parents as teachers is kind of the basis of that program. However, we knew that um, with some of these families being really new to the community or even new to the United States, um, that we might need to add some additional components in for them. Um, so, we are really looking at um, assessing what their needs are. You know, what is what is the immediate need? Um, do they have some health concerns? Do their kids have health concerns? You know, do we need to make sure that they are seen by um, A physician right away. Um, We do want to make sure that all the families are well connected um, with a medical home so that they can have all of that stuff taken care of up front. Um, We have to do things like making sure kids are registered for school. So, you know, navigating that whole um, idea is is totally different for some of them too. That's not something that they um, have had to do in the way that we do that here in the United States. Um, so, yes, we've definitely had to tailor the program uh, just to make sure that we are meeting the family's needs.
1: There is this um, discussion, and uh, maybe there, that's the best way to describe it, of programs and elements that that people just know work or that they've seen work and they've got kind of the anecdotal evidence in their own backyard versus what? evidence has shown and what has been researched and implemented and may have been implemented someplace else. I want to ask you in terms of the value of an evidence-based program versus other programs that may have success, yet they may not be certified or branded as an evidence-based practice. What does that mean to you if it is truly, you know, it's got that stamp of approval of this is evidence-based?
3: Um, especially with parents as teachers, I think because we had experience with it, um, and because it's evidence-based, we know that we have the foundation of a program that is going to be beneficial for families. We know that it can work. We know that, um, there is value in what you will be sharing with the families and, and the idea behind that program, um, So I think that piece is really important in um, making that the foundation of the program.
1: Yeah, it's 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 one thing to to recognize the the data but then when you also get that backed up by actual results in your own community you know th- th- i think that's you know it's kind of like you get the best of both worlds there
3: yes and the other nice thing with parents as teachers and other evidence based programs is that that you know the information you're providing to the family is factual information it's been researched you know you're sharing with them um, you know true science based um, information that they can trust.
1: Well, you talk about what they can trust. It also sounds like something that you and your staff. Absolutely.
3: Yes. Yes.
1: So you have to get the buy in from the families. But then it's also great when your staff and yourself, when you've got your buy in, when you you can support it as well. You know, in in your opinion, I'd like to I'm curious about this. A bigger factor from the results that you're starting to see, uh, which one is, is maybe more important or where you're seeing greater results, the trust that you mentioned between the families and the home visitors, or actually the, the application of, of really, like we just talked about, seeing this program work. Um, and getting that kind of reinforcement, building that trust in the program, versus just watching the the families start to bond more with those home visitors. You know, is there something that you look at and say, you know, I'm really happy because of this?
3: Um, it's a tricky question. Um, but I, I, you know, my first gut response is that both are very important. Um, however, We know from experience in working with, so we have a very large Hispanic population here in Marshalltown, but we're starting to see some other families. So we've got our um, refugee population from Southeast Asia. We're starting to see some Congolese families. So we know um, through experience that it's very important to have that family's trust before they're going to allow you to come into their home before they're going to um, really listen to what you have to say and what information you're sharing with them. So in, when working with the immigrant population, I think trust might be um, the key to getting in the door. But from there, you have to have an evidence-based program um, that's delivered as it is intended. So making sure that, that we are delivering the program with fidelity is um, you know, the second piece of that that, that is also important.
1: Are you seeing your current, let's say the current families that you're serving or those that maybe you have served for a a number of years or a number of months, are they referring new families to you? Are you starting to see that? Because there's a great element of if I trust this so much, I'll recommend it to a friend correct.
3: Yes. And it's funny you mentioned that. Um, So especially with, so some of the, one of the newer populations to come to the area is the Congolese families. Um, And what we have seen is we've got one worker who has worked with a couple of those families um, and now she is going to home visits and all of a sudden two or three new families will walk in the door and they will say, hi, this is Maria. She's our home visitor. Um, You know, and they're, they're introducing her to other families. So she has built that trust with them. Um, and now they are they are starting to tell their other, their
1: friends and their family that, um, you know, she's a trusted resource in this community. Yeah. Make sure you bring more copies to every visit because you never exactly. know who else is going to show. Well, that, I mean, and that's a great, um, that's a, you know, that's, that's truly a, you know, um, an example of the effectiveness and not only seeing the results, but having, you know, how many times do we talk about implementing programs, but trying to get the families to buy in and explaining the value and able to, to demonstrate it when the families recognize and then are able to, to communicate that value, value to others. Right. So for others out there who are, who are listening to this and they're considering you know, implementing maybe a new program or an evidence-based program that they may not have that much familiarity with it, uh, what's your guidance to those? Like implementing an evidence-based practice to making sure it fits in their community as opposed to just taking something you know, figuratively right out of the box and plug and play, knowing that every community is going to be different.
3: Right. Um, number one, I think fidelity is very important. So I think understanding w- um, what criteria you need to meet for that program in order to maintain fidelity is is going to be the number one priority because we all know uh, the program can be a great evidence-based program, but if it's not being delivered as intended that we may not see the result. So I think understanding the fidelity of the program um, from there, you know, we've created policies and procedures to kind of help break that down so that um, everybody knows what is expected of them. You know, it's it's breaking it down into to steps so they understand, you know, I have to have A, B, and C for this program to work. Um, your your policies and procedures, too, I think help provide consistency in the quality of the programming. So, you can hire a new employee, um, share with them what is the fidelity, but those policies and procedures are really going to help guide them in their practice with the families. Um, Other things, I think um, supervision, supporting your staff is very important. Um, You know, making sure that they um, know what's expected of them, but that they can come to a supervisor and ask questions, um, talk through situations um, when that need arises as well.
1: Do you get the chance to... kind of sit back every three every six months and saying hey what's really working for us what would we change are you able to kind of ever you know take a breather and then say hey how are we doing so far and do we need to to adjust because i'm i'm curious about what you guys are learning in the field and if you're able to then apply the lessons learned back
3: yes so um we actually have kind of an internal database, and so we're always collecting data on the families. Um, you know, some of those things are required things in order to meet fidelity, but some of those things are, are things that we have just implemented over time because we've become more curious about maybe what their needs are and, you know, is there something that we're missing? So collecting that data so we have something to reflect back on is very helpful in that. Um, And we have tried, just over the last year or so, tried implementing a couple of focus groups, just getting some families to come in the doors and share, you know, what did you like about the program? Was there something you didn't like about the program? And this is, you know, kind of agency related as a whole, but just getting their input to make sure that we truly are meeting their
1: needs. I'm curious, because immigrant families are are on kind of the, the tip of many folks tongue in working with agencies, what are those needs what are those kind of common needs that that you and your staff are seeing from from these immigrant families
3: um a lot of them um really just need help being pointed in the right direction in terms of how do i use local transportation um like i said school registration seems to be a a large thing um so understanding what documents do i need to bring to the school um some of those forms that you have to fill out are very difficult when, even when you can read and understand English, I can't imagine trying to fill them out and, and not being able to, to read English. So really helping them get through some of that paperwork has been um, a, a big need for families. Um, uh, also helping them, I think, connect with our um, public services. So, you know, how do you get health insurance? Is that something that's offered through your employer and helping them understand how that works? And if not, and they maybe need to apply for some public assistance for their children to be covered under medical, you know, helping them navigate that whole system as well.
1: Interesting that the, the way you're also finding the way to tailor it to the community and really meeting the community's needs. So taking an evidence-based practice and making it meet the needs that you have in your own backyard. Nikki, thank you, and Heidi, thank you both as well. We really appreciate the insight and the sharing on, on the work you guys are doing. And thank you so much for being a part of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me.
2: Thank you, I appreciate it.
1: A reminder that this is one of a number of episodes we're focusing on CB-CAP grantees and their programs. So look out for other episodes uh, diving into state and community collaboration and evaluating the effectiveness of community-based prevention programs. Those are coming up in future episodes on the podcast. Hey, if you are not already subscribed, you can find the Information Gateway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And you can check out some other resources on prevention and CB-CAP programs on this podcast's webpage over at childwelfare.gov. We'll have links to a number of resources, including the Child Abuse Prevention Resource Guide and the National Child Abuse Prevention Month site, which is full of information for caseworkers and communities to work together implementing programs to strengthen families and prevent abuse and neglect. And if there's other information you're looking for to improve practice, find data or other resources, see the laws and policies for your state or other states, you can visit Child Welfare Information Gateway at childwelfare.gov. Or for more help, you can reach out to our information support services team at info at childwelfare.gov. So my thanks to Heidi Acure and Nikki Hartwig for their time and sharing how these CBCAP cap grantees implement evidence-based practices. And of course, my thanks to you for listening and subscribing to the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Until next time, I'm Tom Oates. Have a great day.
0: Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.